Does someone have the YouTube one open? Okay, good. Yes, okay, it's, we're good. it's all good. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Sun and the Moon. Um, this this week we have Benjamin Acadia, um, a consultant um, experienced in in all facets of growing between hydroponic, living soil, organic cultivation, and hybridization of the of all concepts. Um, ben, would you like to talk a little bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, first off, thank you so much for having me on the uh, show. I really appreciate it, Luna and Gwen. It's great to always see you guys. Really big fan. Um, so right now, what I've been focusing on the past few years is integrated systems design. So basically creating cultivation facilities from the ground floor up, working with architects and engineers and helping the grower that's going to be running the facility really be able to achieve a lot of their maximum potential by making sure that they don't run into any of the pitfalls that are really, really common in the industry when building facilities. And then aside from that, I do a lot of cultivation management of facilities, helping growers really, again, achieve their potential, learning new methods and refining SOPs. And then one of my favorite things to do is just to teach, educate, and speak to people. That's fantastic. That's so amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on here. I'm really excited to get into some, some science-heavy concepts with you. Absolutely. Um, in the past, we've talked, um, you know, kind of off, off screen, we've talked quite a bit about secondary metabolites and different cultivation techniques to just um, ultimately create the best product, right? The, the most desirable end product for the consumer um, and different ways of achieving that. Um, so let's just get like right into it. Let's talk about secondary metabolites. <laughs> Do you wanna explain to people maybe a little bit like what secondary metabolites are, why they're so important and why they've been focused on a lot in the industry today? Uh, sure. So for people that are just getting into this and learning about what secondary metabolites really are, like what what are metabolites and how are they created within the plant? Um, essentially, they're a key part of plant physiology. They're chemical constructs that are created through the plant synthesis. The most common ones that we're going to be associated with are cannabinoids, terpenes, and flavonoids. They're essentially complex hydrocarbon chains. And so it's it's different chains of molecules assembled in different ways that the plant creates for different specific purposes within its own body. Much like we do ourselves, we have metabolites within our bodies that we create to be able to do things like move, to be able to digest, to be able to breathe, to be able to think. So for plants, it's very, very specific to the synthesis of tissues and the synthesis of chemical constructs. So predominantly with the metabolites that we're looking at are the ones that are geared towards chemical construction versus tissue construction, at least for the majority of the time when we're thinking about stimulation. There is uh, becoming more and more prevalent the type of stimulation and biostimulants are coming out that are able to help with the increase of actual synthesis of tissue. So increasing biomass, increasing literally cellular matrix size, increasing stalk diameter, branch strength, cola size, trichome size, and even uh, calyx size. So all of those things are created through these chemical constructs that the plant creates from the nutrients that we provide to it, but also the stimulations, either abiotic or biotic, living or non-living, or sorry, that would be reversed. Abiotic is non-living and biotic is living, um, that are able to influence it and create epigenetic expression and get the plant to give us the types of expressions that we're looking for of high yields, robust growth, really vigorous, vigorous development and structure, and then high amounts of cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids. And also diversity of the, the portfolio, not just high THC, but a lot of different cannabinoids making up that total active cannabinoid content. 
another like sulfur-based compounds, things that provide our full aroma profile, our uh, thiols, our um, uh, phenols, <laughs> things that kind of just build the entire effect of like the yeah, cannabis. Ethyls. And really, yeah. And then, yes, and uh, set the, the product aside from other products on the, on the market, which is mm -hmm. why these, these products have become so popular and kind of pushed lately is so that people can really create a product that sets itself aside from other people's products that aren't using these these sciences. Yep, couldn't agree more. Um, so in organic cultivation, this is a lot of like what I'm focusing on um, is creating different profiles of, you know, carbon-based, you know, chains, organic acids, carboxylic acids um, to provide a full full profile of, of plant, plant stimulating molecules, right? Uh, compounds that stimulate the physiology of the plant and give it a fuller genetic expression. And so what I found in organic cultivation is that we're able to incorporate all of these through like the diversity of biology and the diversity of inputs um, to kind of let the soil um, ferment and convert things from one form to another um, through like interaction of root exudates and stuff like that. If we're not using that kind of system, because I know you're talking about um, products that are these biostimulants, um, what what kind of products are people talking about using these days to promote those effects outside of a living soil system? So however much I love living soil, the vast majority of my clients don't operate in living soil um, as the vast majority of the industry does. Most people are running through drip irrigation or some sort of modified system off of that. A lot of them like to use things that are dosatron-like or Anderson unit-like systems that allow them to have more of a automated hands-off consistency in their feeding. So they're looking for specific types of liquids that can be run through or solubles that can be put into a liquid form, like a wettable soluble powder that can be put into a, a large reservoir tank and then run out into these uh, multiple rooms. So when you're looking at that type of a system, there's products that are being put on the market that are, there's sort of like a few different categories. There's what I would say is like the microbial micro uh, biostimulants, which are things that are basically sort of replicating or trying to replicate like what you and I would look at in our living soil system, where we're increasing the active biology and we're promoting that biology, providing it food sources, providing it structure in a natural farming sense, providing actual inoculations of indigenous microorganisms or cultivated microorganisms. Then there's also the sort of hormonal extract versions. Um, I would say that you would think, see things like that, like seaweed extract, kelp extracts, and certain things like people are getting into like sprouted teas and things like that. And then the next step over would be stress inducing. Um, there's actually ones that replicate things such as an attack on the plant, like an insect attack or a pathogenic attack on the plant, creating a stress response, creating a stimulation of secondary metabolite production. So there's, like I said, sort of a couple different forms. And I mean, you can even consider that, you know, humic acids and fulvic acids, which are just natural acid forms, amino acids, um, can also be considered a biostimulant. So there's a handful of different ones. Now, viscosity plays a large role in that. So that does limit a lot of the microbial ones. And you don't want to produ like produce large amounts of biofilm in your irrigation systems or in your holding tanks. So you have to be really targeted with what type of biostimulant you're going to choose and what specific effect you're looking to gain because you don't want to run them all the time. There's some that you can utilize pretty consistently, like microbial, but like targeted stress, you want to do at very specific points in time. And things like a uh, nutritional, like the kelp meal or an enzymatic or a hormonal, again, you're going to want to be targeted. You're not going to want to be juicing it every day. Our bodies don't produce mass amounts of hormones every day. 
they produce what we need to get by and occasionally a boost of it can give us a real jump start but putting undue stress on the plant by taking it too far out of its comfort zone and too far out of its natural operating sphere can have unintended epigenetic effects and then you can have things happen in the plant's expression that you weren't looking for yeah, definitely. Like a plant only has a certain amount of energy to allocate to each yeah. process. You tell it to focus too much on a particular process, it can't focus it on another process like yep. yield. Yep, absolutely. Well, to, you know, protect against pests over and over and over again, then you're not going to get the yield potentially if you're overusing it, right? It's all about and balance. Finding right. a sweet spot where everything sits together in stasis and in homeostasis. Mm -hmm. So what are some specific examples that work in these systems like dosatrons and people who are listening, like they're looking for things that are run through irrigation. What do you recommend when you're out there in the field? So I do try to stay away from making product recommendations. Okay. Um, that said, um, there are some good companies out there. I mean, I'm a big fan of fish shit. I'm a big fan of uh, Impella Bioscience. It's going, got some good products out there. But again, I am a natural farmer and a regenerative person. So in general, when I'm working with a client, if they don't want to go the natural farming way, I'll allow them to bring different products to the table that they're interested in. Because whenever they're looking for something, there's never been a grower that's come to me that's like, you know, I want to try something, but I haven't looked into it at all. They always yeah. come to you with a list of products that they're already interested in, they're looking at. Um, and then I'll give them guidance from my experience based off of what they want to bring to the table. And then if they really do press, I'll give them one, I think, you know, if, if if one of the things I would recommend was not in their initial selection, then I do recommend something. Um, but Impella Bioscience produces some some really solid ones. Lactobacilli is phenomenal. Um, Bavaria bassiana is excellent. Uh, mycorrhizal fungi, of course. And um, what else? This shit's a big one that I'm a fan of, I have to say. And it's not just because they're near me. I actually met them when they first started their company, and I found out their farm was at the top of my street. And oh, nice. I was really surprised, but I've been, I've tried the product and I have really enjoyed it. Um, it's not, it's not, you know, a be all end all. I think that they're all, you know, unique and should be used at specific points of time again for specific targeted effects, but labs is always something that's good to have in your soil, especially if you're running in one of those systems where you've got no biology. I mean, really any, any living biology that you can get into your soil, if it's a soilless system is, is really important. <laughs> But again, diversity is key. Don't just dump in one single thing and hope for the best. Um, provide a plethora that you can. Do your little bit of research, go on Google Scholar, see what's good symbiotic microbes and see what's on the market that's available. But I would also recommend check some podcasts. Um, there's been some good ones on Tad Hussey's Kiss Organics about people actually doing lab testing of specific products. Not every product has what it says it has in it. Yeah. Um, a lot of these things that you're suggesting will leave residual in some of these systems, right? So are Absolutely. you recommending enzymes for yes. cleaning out? Do yep. you have any recommendations yep. so on specific post, enzymes? Yeah, so post uh, running anything, you want to do a water flush. So you need mm -hmm. to build that into your protocol because you're going to want to clean out your irrigation line. So your main feed line that runs from your tank to your systems and your rooms is one thing. Then from there, you have your splits that's going to go into your actual rooms, feed down towards your benches. Then you're going to have your whips that go to your benches. Then you're going to have your feed lines across the table and then your drip emitters into your bags. So it's really important that you understand that when you're determining how much feed volume you're going to give, that you're incorporating a flush that should be at least about a, a quarter of what you're running. 25% of what you're running should be a clean water flush at the end as a good practice. And that just needs to be incorporated into how much you're providing as far as a feed. 
Um, you can run lower depending on the system. I've seen some systems that run at you know, 10% water flush at the end. Uh, and then we do an occasional enzymatic cleaner. Though, depending on which enzymatic cleaner you use, um, labs is a great option again. Uh, we, however, at the end of every cycle, run a heavy sanitation through the entire line and out into that room through the whips, through the feed lines, through the individual drip emitters onto the table, and then scrub all the tables down and clean them, and then run a sanitation uh, cleanser after that and a water after that to make sure you never want to leave sanitizer in your lines after. Like, run, I'm a, I'm a sustainability guy and I love the environment and nature, but run a couple extra gallons if you're not sure that you've got all that sanitizer out, because I've watched clients fry an entire room because there was bits of it, there was bits of uh, sanitizer left in the lines. You could literally see it as it worked its way down the table because of where the pressure first started from, and you could just see the plants dying off. Oh no! So these are all in pots. So you're talking about systems where people are growing in pots. For the most part, that's what I see in most facilities these days: is people running in pots or in Rockwell cubes. Though I don't really deal much with the Rockwell cubes anymore. I'm not really working in salts as much. Um, I do have some clients, but. Most of what I'm doing is people that are trying to do a hybrid organic style where they're trying to be operating in the systems that they understand in sort of the turn and burn method and resetting the room each time and, and working with media and fertigation and dosing versus a living soil where they're running in very, very large scale beds. I mean, um, very, very large scale pots like 100, 200 gallon or even like, like 50 gallon um, or running in large beds like uh, four by eights and up. But most people at this point, the major operators that I'm working with are, are running in pots or of varying sizes. So what I'm hearing, or the first thing that comes to mind to me, um, is that a lot of people are kind of starting to recognize the um, implications or the, the unique effects, the, the higher quality of organic grown or organic input um, contributing flour, right? Mm -hmm. So people have been growing with salts for a long time. And now we're seeing people try to do hybridized methods where people are trying to get those increased yields, but also get that different flavor, that different effect, you know, exactly. and people who smoke organic cannabis really know the difference between, you know, pump and dump high salt hydroponic weed um, and yeah. like an organic grown flower. It's a really drastic difference if you if you really know um, if you really know the flower. And so it sounds to me like the the industry is kind of redirecting itself to. It's yeah, it's it's definitely like people people are starting to to, to know the the market is demanding almost this this different quality of flour that smokes better, tastes better, feels better, feels like you know not so much like a drug like um, like hydro like really pump and dump yeah, hydro. That's narcotic. Yeah, you know it feels narcotic. It doesn't feel good. I just kind of get like I get like weird and anxious. But when I smoke like organic flour, it actually feels like medicine to me. So, so what I'm hearing is that these these large scale operators are trying to find different ways to maximize their yields keep like a really consistent predictable regimen um while integrating these different compounds that boost flavonoid pathways and different secondary metabolites that create wider profiles of aromas and um, therapeutic effects right yeah um, so i know you were saying that you don't like to recommend specific products um you had mentioned uh fish it which is almost like a aquaponic type product right yep. so yep. um so you have like a lot of those nitrogen fixing bacteria a lot of um, fish amino acids, um, and people are starting using like kelp a lot. What about like specific phytohormones? Are you seeing people using specific phytohormones like methyljasmine or like, you know, tricontinol, things like that? Very, very few. Very, very, very few. Um, there are a couple. And in general, I find that they're the people that are actually already more into the living soil scene. 
Um, they've usually got at least a portion of their facility or they're doing it at home. And that's what's gotten them into that sort of realm of understanding more of like phytochemistry options. But no, the, the general operators that I'm seeing in the industry don't have any knowledge of that being a thing yet. And when you start to explain it to them, some of them are on board and some of them are very like, I don't know about that yet. Okay. So are you seeing an increase? So I'm okay, let me back up. So a lot of the industry, you know, you know, the industry just isn't testing for a lot of these other compounds like like files and sulfur compounds um, that uh, kind of produce the larger aroma profile. But are you seeing a different uh, different profile in terpene expression and cannabinoid expression compared to this salt based um, and in an organic hybrid program? Yeah, yeah, no, without question. Um, so very, very high level rudimentary sort of like not getting into nitty gritty, but when I, when I think about salts hybridized and then living soil sort of on as a spectrum, I would say salts, you predominantly are, you're always going to get your highest yields. You're going to get rapid, rapid growth, extremely high yields, and often very, very high THC production. I do find that you get more limited cannabinoid profiles and you get, though you can push really quite solid percentages of terpenes, um, they're again limited to a few dominant terpenes, not anywhere near the plethora of complexity that we see. So then you get into the middle of the road, which is like your hybridized methods of varying style. And there you start to see still pretty comparable yields, um, potentially like slightly less depending on what regiments you're running and how well you're running it. And you'll also start to see potentially a slight drop of a few percentages of THC. You know, you might not be pulling down 32s to 35s. Um, you'll be in the high 28s and 30s, but you do start to see. If, oh, sorry. Why do you think you that is? Start, um, so what I think it is is that the plant begins to have more options available to it of nutrition and of these, you know, specific um, either stimulants and or enzymes or hormones or just molecules of nutrition that it can utilize and create much more complex chains. So like when we think about food, I work in the ag industry as well. When we talk about food, like the sweet corn that's organic and the sweet corn that's conventional, the sweet corn that's organic is much sweeter, like considerably sweeter. And the only reason that that would be is that the plant is utilizing something differently to create a higher concentration of the same compound and also a diversity of similar compounds. So I think in cannabis, it's the same thing. The the closer that we get to having a larger diversity of both microbiology and therefore endophytes and having a diversity of amino acids available or different types of acids available in the soil, different hormones and enzymes, and having the nutritional component there, we give the plant all of the building blocks that it needs to be able to achieve its genetic potential. Now, you as a grower still need to be able to grow it to its genetic potential. You need to be able to provide it the the proper stresses, the proper environment of cultivation, the proper watering sets up and all that. But your care aside, it's what's the plant going to do. And that's going to be purely genetic, provided you remove those other factors by providing everything that it needs as best as you can. So I think that the complexity that we see, again, you see a much larger jump when you get into living soils. I've seen living soil flower with terpene profiles of over 20 to 25 different terpenes. And I've seen a percentage as high as uh, 9.5%. But I've seen salt pulling down 40% THC and like 43% TAC. I've never seen that in living soil, but I've seen high 30s. So 
the other thing is that I think that the industry is starting to mature and we're starting to move away from just THC and moving towards actual TAC, total active cannabinoid profile, and how much diversity is within that profile. Because if you've got 30% TAC and you've got 29% THC, then there's only 1% of other cannabinoids. But if you've got like 25% THC or 22% THC with 30% TAC, you've got a plethora of other cannabinoids in there in very viable phytochemical ratios to actually have a chemical effect on your body, to have a physiological and phytochemical effect. So that's where people are starting to realize and experience that there's there's more to the experience with the higher concentration, I mean, with the uh, higher diversity and higher concentration versus just higher concentration of select chemicals. It's almost like the plant has like a certain amount of compounds that it can uptake at a time. And when you're doing completely sterile you know, no other, you know, compounds other than salt-based nutrients, it'll take in only those, those salt-based nutrients to create yield. But when you introduce other things, the plant will decide to, to take in other compounds and not so much, you know, maybe like the salt-based nutrients, like there's only so much the plant can uptake. So they have to kind of sacrifice one for the other. I think that there's also something to be said for the symbiotic relationship between the microbiology and the plant itself that creates different chemistry and different responses within the plant. Because even when you take a pure salt system and you jack in some microbes, you see a substantial jump. You see a tangible difference. Now, the nutrition is the same and the nutrition that you're providing to the plant essentially at that point is already all bioavailable as long as you've got a really good nutrient line. It should be very bioavailable to that plant. So the microbes really don't have as much of a role to play. So then what is actually happening there? What synergy and, and relationship and symbiotic experience is happening between these microbes and this plant beyond just the microbes going into the soil, foraging for nutrition, bringing it back and trading it to the plant for glucose and um, carbs. So it, there has to be something more complex that's going on there. And that's where I think it starts to play a role. Yeah, and that's why like... I think that the biology increasing in living soil in a, in a hybrid system and then in living soil further increases that potential reaction. Sorry not to cut you off. No, no, no. Finish what you're saying. Um, I just agree. I agree what you're saying, but I feel like in my mind, the way I think about it is that plants, I mean, they've been around for what, 250 million years, they have to communicate, right? And so terpenes are that communication source. And so when you have that diversity of organisms, what they're doing is that they're exchanging these um, phytohormones and chemicals and compounds to increase because they need to communicate and they're talking with one another essentially and when you have um, you know like jasmonic acid increased and salicylic acid increased from these different organisms that's a signaling pathway to trigger the production of other secondary metabolites and so it's like you're saying a symbiotic relationship that we can hardly even you know we, can we don't understand <laughs> we don't, but there's like there's papers that we can see exogenous applications of this jasmonic acid or the methyl um, jasminates, and it will increase within the plant and it will start increasing other secondary metabolites because it's just that communication of like, hey, like I'm here, you're here, we have this relationship, we've been evolving together for 250 million years, and so it's like when sure, I mean, you can grow a plant with just the food that it needs. But is it going to express itself fully? And expression is what? Communication, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of how I think of it. Yeah, so. no, I would agree. And I would also say that there's something that, you know, we are, we're beginning to understand the epigenetic influences of our environment to the aerial parts of the plant, the above por ground portions of the plant. 
but we really have almost no understanding of epigenetic influences within the root zone. And you can't tell me that having like the, the research that Dr. Dr. James White has done um, that he presented at the Organic Cultivators Conference this past year. And he was talking about how they have actually got visual video through microscopy of what we had originally thought was that basically your root tips went out and the microbes came up to the root tip and that they communicated by, you know, like chemicals at first we thought just within touching each other. And then we thought, okay, no, they make physical contact and they make some sort of direct exchange. His research is actually now showing the microbe, let's say it's a bacterial cell, will come up to the cellular wall of the root. The cellular wall of the root will actually envelop it. And then superoxide is exuded and it dissolves the actual exterior cellular wall of the bacteria. And a antioxide is put around it to encapsulate its RNA DNA and, and keep it safe. The plant takes the nutrients that it had requested from the microbe when it went out foraging reprograms the DNA of that microbe, re-encapsulates it within its cellular wall, and then exudes it back out through its cellular wall into the soil. So we've essentially learned that they're not just communicating, the plants actually are directly reprogramming the DNA RNA of the microbes to get what they want. Instead of being a communication of like, hey, I need phosphorus, it reprograms it to want phosphorus. Wow, yeah, that is amazing. That is yeah. really, really cool. So you're absolutely I've, right. Like they are communicating like serious, like intimate soul communication oh yeah. like, oh at yeah. the DNA level. I saw <laughs> some study on pine trees. I think I, maybe I talked with you about this, Luna, but um, it just fascinates me because the pine trees have the relationship with the mycorrhizal fungi. Mm -hmm. And when they get attacked by bark beetles, um, yep. They increase beta caryophylline and then the fungal network increases beta caryophylline and then it sends it out through the entire mycelial network so that all the other trees know all like the trees hey, get yo, guarded. there's yep. there's bark beetles coming, like let's prepare and it's just so freaking cool. Yeah, the extra mycorrhizal <laughs> fungi that are within pine trees are are crazy so a whole subset of the mushroom kingdom. Like we think about our mycorrhizal fungi that we're utilizing to like glomular uh, for cannabis and for vegetable production and fruit production. But the ectorhizals that are working for the um, the pine trees is just so cool. It is. It's really cool. There's like pines that they tried to grow in Puerto Rico, and they would bring them down from South Carolina, I think, or North Carolina, and they wouldn't grow. They wouldn't grow. They are bare root, though. And finally, they brought them over with soil from the soil. native, and it had that mycorrhizal had fungi, mycorrhizal, and they yeah. finally lived. It was like, you can't Yeah, they brought an inoculum with it. That's incredible. <laughs> Yeah, I heard one time that, um, I, I think it was just like a funny analogy, I don't remember where I heard it, but that if aliens were to come down and analyze the most used language on the planet, that the language would be terpenes. Yeah. Because all bacteria and all plants, they communicate to each other through terpenes. They tell each other the warning signs, where nutrients are, where to go, where's food, where's danger, you know, where we can host and feed and multiply and it's all through terpenes it's the most used language on the planet absolutely i love that That's and the most complex. Like <laughs> right That's not fun. and it's fun. absolutely the most complex if you think about it as well i mean you think about on in, in human language right i believe chinese mandarin uh has the most individual potential like characters and creations like like words basically and then there's over twenty thousand registered terpenes Show me one language in the world with 20,000 different characters. Right? Unique, completely unique words. 
yeah. and you know they're in profiles too it's not like you yeah. know one character you know it's like a full assembly of yeah. these profiles of terpenes to communicate it's like we we can't fathom that we don't operate on that that complex level it's just so amazing we we think of of our lower life forms as you know not as advanced as us, us yeah, yeah. <laughs> like i feel like the, the earth and, and nature communicates through fungi and bacteria in such a more advanced way than we give it credit i think it's much smarter yeah no we're, we're primordial yeah right we're we're the ignorant arrogant ones in the yep. corner yep. well i always <laughs> say that one of the greatest things you can do as a cultivator or really as a human is to remove your hubris to to step back and be humble and appreciate and observe like everything in my opinion basically needs to start with observation everything because until you understand how a system is operating you really have no business deciding how you could change that system or influence that system or have the hubris to believe you could improve that system agreed yeah i think yes i think that like old growth forests systems like that that are established that haven't been disturbed a hundred percent but I do think that sometimes when we when we're trying to fix the problems that we created, I think that we can improve them. But yeah, 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 that's different. I'm talking like natural cycles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not going to go into an old growth forest and be like, you know what, this needs. Yeah, this no, needs when you see a fire, Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. There are times to react, and there are times to observe. So what we're saying here, everybody listening, is that you should be growing with microbes in as much of an organic system that's incorporating these natural systems, that's incorporating all of the things that plants do naturally, that if you just grow with just salts, you're not going to get the full expression of the plant. But I think most people listening probably already do that. <laughs> yeah, terpenes is definitely my love language. Oh, I love it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Ben, so do, have you ever heard of anyone growing in like living soil beds using salts? So yes and no. Um, I have heard, I actually, I know somebody that I'm working with a bit uh, doing some crazy mad science stuff, not production, just research and development. Um, I'm a tinkerer and a dabbler and I like to prove things right or wrong myself. Um, though I take, you know, advice from those that I, you know, learned deep, deep amounts from. Um, I still like to try. <laughs> and so um, we're doing living soil bed four by eight and we're utilizing salts, uh, specific single molecule salts at specific points in time to try to provide very, very targeted doses of specific nutrients, macro and micronutrients, um, sort of to try to be a stimulant in some extent, a biostimulant to some extent, or, or not even necessarily a biostimulant, but You've eaten your three meals for the day, but you're trying to bulk up, so you have a protein shake too. So there's certain points in time, specific targeted times that we are trying to see if doing a you know single or a week long application of one of these solubles or of a handful of blended solubles has a tangible effect both on yield, quality, and profile, but also on the microbiology. So I have um, a microbiometer, and we will take measurements before, during, and after of the microbiological content, fungal and bacterial, to be able to understand, are we doing damage to the microbiology by providing this salt-based nutrient, essentially robbing them of being, because one of the big reasons that we get dead farmland is that if you provide salt-based nutrients, salt -based, this is why salt-based people always do turn and burns. 
because you can't run continuously in the same soil over and over again without providing nutrition and microbiology. And if you rototill a field and use Roundup and use salt-based nutrients for your cornfield after a certain point in time, you start getting diminishing returns. You're adding more and more nutrition and you're getting less and less out of it because there's such a loss of microbiological content there. So that comes from the fact that as, I mean, a rototilling is deadly to microbes, specifically the um, fungi, but it's detrimental to bacteria, but they pop back real fast. Uh, and that's why weeds come back first is that weeds like bacterially rich soils. But in this type of an instance, what we're looking at is, are we robbing that relationship to an extent where microbes are dying off and we're losing microbial mass by sort of skipping the line and giving the kids at the dinner table. So like uh, the analogy that I use for salts and for organic is um, you've got a family. The plants are your children. The parents are the microbes. The parents go grocery shopping and they come back and they cook the food and they feed it to the children in response. They get love. Now, the food in them going grocery shopping is the microbes going through the soil matrix, gathering the individual microbes that they need. Cooking is them digesting and making it bioavailable, essentially or them converting it, making it bioavailable to the plant. And then the love that they get back is the sugar. We call it cakes and cookies, the sugar and carbohydrates that they are given in exchange and exudates from the plant. Now, salt-based nutrients are takeout, Chinese and pizza. Now, at first, when you dump mom and dad's cooking on the table and pizza and Chinese food, well, the kids get double down. They're getting all the food that they can possibly eat. But after a while, you know, mom's cooking a little old and the Chinese is easy. It's right there. The pizza is so fast. It's right there. It's the convenience of having that salt-based nutrient right there. Ionized, already ready to go. Already chelated, or chelated, ready for the plant's uptake. Well, after a while, mom and dad stopped getting love because their food's not getting eaten. When they stop getting love, they disappear. They leave. So that's the microbes essentially are dying off because they're no longer being fed in this exchange because the plants are no longer needing to exchange exudates with them because they're getting the nutrition that they need directly ionized and through chelation. So that's the analogy that I use. And that's where sort of we're trying to measure with this, this method or this tech, this test, this experiment. Can we do this in a way that is not only beneficial to our end goals for production of the plant, but is not detrimental to the environment and the microbiology that we're working with trying to cultivate. First of all, that's a really sad analogy. I would be super sad if my parents just <laughs> left because I didn't eat their food. <laughs> um. <laughs> it kind of works, right? It's a complex idea that you're trying to translate to people. Yes, yes, I love it. Um, what have you found then? What has your microbiometer been telling you? I cannot release that yet. We don't have enough data. Uh, uh, proprietary information. No, not proprietary, not proprietary. Oh, okay. Simply, um, I don't like to make a statement until I have enough data to really back it. Okay. I, I respect that. It's the scientist. I originally started in nursing <laughs> and doing emergency <laughs> medicine. So everything was like, oh, you don't make right. a statement until you are sure. And you are sure when you've got enough data in multiple sets that you can back it up. Um, okay, so you got to come back when you're yeah. and it's time to release that stuff, man, because I want to know. Yeah, for real. I have I, I promise been you thinking about doing the now. same thing. I've been thinking about experimenting and playing with um, just different salt based additions because I've been struggling with this phosphorus, the just the bat guanos, the unsustainability of some of these organic mined um, minerals. And I'm, I talked so to a, a lot of different. Go ahead. I got, I got a little note I can give you on that. Okay. Yes. Um, phosphorus and luna might like this because sulfur as well. Now, this does not work if you're in production. Um, if you're under state regulation, this is not something that you can do most likely because they're very selective in what they allow you to use for nutrition. 
um, depending on what state you're in. Uh, but phosphoric and sulfuric acid is something that is often used as a pH adjuster for your water. Now, there was some anecdotal things that we had seen. If you are using phosphoric acid for a pH adjustment in your water and or as a foliar application, it provides very high amounts of bioavailable phosphorus and sulfur to your land. Like really high amounts was what we found. And we were like really concerned at first because we didn't understand why our soil tests was coming back with such high levels of phosphorus and sulfur when we weren't adding that much. Um, and it was because they were using phosphoric sulfuric acid as a pH adjuster. It's also a stabilizing agent in a lot of those organic products. Yep. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that high enough levels that it's, it's, which it usually isn't as a stabilizer. I'm sorry, what? I said, you have to get it in high enough levels, which it usually isn't in the stabilizer, in the, as a stabilizer in a lot of products. Um, the okay. amount that they use doesn't have the effect that you would see if you're trying to use it as an actual nutrition. Even if it's being like continuously added, like in these, these. I mean, yeah, it'll, it'll be used up, but it, it's not something that you could use in like in place of phosphorus or in place of a phosphorus additive. Um, so it's not like if you've got a handful of different inputs and two of them have phosphoric acid or sulfuric acid as a stabilizer, um, that that'll replace how much phosphorus you would need to provide your plants for them to grow properly. It will benefit and supplement. It's, it's going to be there and it's going to be used, um, but it's not necessarily enough for the plant to actually just go off of on its own. Cool. Good enough. Interesting. Some of these rules that different states have, I just, it's, there's so many different ways around and loopholes and things like that. I've yeah. heard of, um, you know, like in California, you weren't, I don't know if it's statewide, I think so, that you couldn't use sulfur as IPM spray, but yep. you could use it for foliar feeding. Foliar spray, yep. It's like, what? That's the you same thing, but... You can use it as a nutrient. Yes, so that was like... Now, it just so happens cool. that I had aphids when I decided to give a, you know, phosphorus, uh, sulfur feed, but... <laughs> yeah, when I was full of spraying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's not what I was using it for. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, another one you could think about is in natural farming. Um, WCAP, water-soluble calcium phosphate, is a really, really viable method and it for like easy extraction it's not super super crazy high but i mean you you get concentrations of dilution to reach what you're looking for as far as actual ppms of phosphorus um but you essentially just take large animal bones and char them down till they crack and then put them in an acid extraction of vinegar and you get water soluble calcium phosphate again not something that you can 100 replace your phosphorus regimen with but if you're able to supplement with a handful of different methods of phosphorus addition then you can be a little bit more sustainable versus just going for a bat guano or a seabird guano. Cool. Have you ever seen any like test results on products like that, like homemade products like that? Only anecdotal evidence. Right. It's 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 conceptual, right, and and makes sense. But I'm just curious, like what the I would love to do it. Um, on the list of my things to send out for testing and and, <laughs> and experiments to run. Right. It's not a large enough portion right now of my day to day work. Um, for me to be able to dedicate the time that I want to, to it. So what about like micronized minerals? Yeah. And you I mean, like I micronized? micronization, it, the, the larger the surface area that you can create, the more bioavailable a nutrient is going to be in a smaller amount of time. So the, the more you micronize, the closer you're going to be able to, or not closer, but the, the more you're able to reduce the timeline of readily, readily available. Um, that actually goes to one of the points that you and I were talking about earlier with like nanoization of particles. 
Um, so like there's companies that like most, most nutrition, most fertilizer companies, um, especially in like the organic realm, not so much in salts, but in the organic realm, they run through like a thousand to 2000 micron filtration as far as particle size. And, you know, that's pretty small as far as what we're looking for when we're just diluting something into a large tank and then hand feeding or feeding from a, a, a dram or something like that. But it's not great for when you're doing things like dosatrons or Anderson units. But when you have something that's micronized to say sub 100, then you've got things that are actually reaching nanoparticle levels and they're able to get to such a small microscopic level that you can emit them through basically anything as far as your your systems, but also through spray heads and nozzles for foliars. If they're really, really great at creating small droplet size. And they're also able to, on contact with the surface of the tissue, be actually able to penetrate through the cellular wall directly into the plants. So like you and I were talking a little bit about carbon-based fertilizers that are highly micronized and their ability to provide carbon directly to the cells versus having to go through like respiration, plant inhaling CO2, expending energy that it received through photosynthesis to be able to break that CO2 bond through the redox, and then having to take that CO2, or sorry, having now take that carbon and oxygen, breathe the oxygen back out, and then mobilize the carbon to where it wants it. You can literally provide a tissue foliar to the whole plant, hitting almost all of the surface area of the, exp uh, the aerial parts of the plant, providing direct carbon to it. So now not only does it not have to expend energy mobilizing that carbon to where it needs it to be for cellular production. It doesn't have to expend the energy to break that carbon down from a less readily available source. And you're able to do it within the cell itself. So you're actually even able to even eliminate the short path of it going from like the exterior to the interior because you're, you're applying it directly to the exterior of the cell. And it doesn't have like that thick of a cell wall, unless you're growing like some of the massive plants that you do outside where you get like a four inch diameter stalk, then yeah, there's a good amount of space for it to go from the outside of that stalk to the inside. but it's it's really interesting to see how that's starting to become a thing with certain brands um and the responses that they're getting from it yeah i've been playing with micronized calcium lately that's pretty cool finding. i mean the plants love it you know calcium is just such a crucial part of of cell function cell development uh, cell wall building and same with amino acids so i've been combining amino acids and micronized calcium together um, and doing foliar applications and i'm just seeing you know, like I don't have any problems with trigger pressure, but it's just a little, it's just even, even better. Even more. Right? Even, even more. Um, and I'm, some of my pots have some, some old soil in them. And um, I've been, you know, really working on bringing them back to life. And I've been making content about bringing soil back to life and reintroducing nutrients and stuff like that. Um, but I'm still finding uh, that they just need like that extra kick. And sometimes, uh, you know, foliar applications are good to get past issues that, you know, nutrient uptake issues in the soil. So I'm mm -hmm. just hitting it with a foliar application, um, especially in micronized form, like how you were saying, the plant doesn't have to expend energy to use these uh, elements, these compounds. They just take it directly into the cell wall. Um, and amino acids are, you know, great for this. You know, amino acids serve that function also. Um, and so do, you know, micronized inputs like micronized calcium. And amino acids and calcium, you know, that's what produces a lot of our different uh, volatile compounds are. Yep. Uh, our flavonoid compounds, you know, they're the, the the building blocks for so many different things inside of our plants and expressions within our plants. So I've been, every other night I've been out there spraying my plants with this stuff um, and they're just rocking, they love it. Um, it's a part of my regimen that will stick around. Like I don't always 
make changes and then keep them forever. Like I like to play with mm -hmm. stuff. Sometimes I keep things. Sometimes I don't. The the fuller application of micronized calcium and, and amino acids is is definitely here to stay. Hell yeah. Yeah. So um, speaking to that, I actually think that you are 100% right. And I'm actually seeing individual brands now that are doing the vast majority of their nutrition through foliars. And I think that that's a really interesting concept, especially when we're talking about living soils. One of the you know only real major drawbacks of living soils is that you do have to constantly be adding amendments to the soil. And that can lead to certain things having toxic buildups of either heavy metals or sodium or you know any number of things so the ability to provide a good amount of targeted nutrition and specifically like individual types of targeted nutrition to the plant foliarly versus having to feed it into the soil not only are we skipping a portion of the plants you know expenditure of energy but we're also putting less undue stress on the soil because i mean however much i love living soil let's be honest the way that we run cannabis is soil is almost abusive to the soil as far as like what we demand of it on just a continuous basis and just it's as soon as we can stack it we're running it again and then as soon as we can bring it back we're running it again and i think that we could ease off a little bit and allow it to be a bit more of a natural soil cycle and a little bit more of a natural nutritive cycle by getting that extra push that we need as cannabis growers versus standard food growers or you know farmers produce or anything like that I'd say speak for yourself indoor man outdoor you let the the soil cycle through winter, that's totally crop, different covering totally different <laughs> totally different because you've got all these external factors that influence your soil that you can't get indoors we don't have rainstorms we don't have barometric pressure changes like that we don't have heavy winds and animals that fall. you know yep. you don't have leaves falling on the ground and decomposing yeah. over wintertime absolutely yeah my outdoor beds no straight living soil and they're five years running and happy as hell. But mm -hmm. as far as indoor systems, yeah, I mean, we, we're creating an unnatural natural environment and right. we're demanding round after round from it. Usually not a lot of, I mean, there are some growers that allow, you know, fallow periods and they allow downtime for their beds to live, cycle and come back online. But most producers at this point in time, we're paying by square footage. And unless you've got enough square footage to store beds out of production rooms, and rotate fresh beds in. Yeah. You oh you God. have to be you have to be on that cycle of constant turn and burn or not turn and burn right. but like constantly turning the system, which mm -hmm. demands a lot more of the soil. And I think that we could alleviate some of that pressure potentially by providing a lot of the extra nutrition that we need through foliar. Interesting. I just wrote a paper for Seedsman on foliar feeding, and when I was doing some research for it, because I was all about, I love foliar feeding, I'm a huge proponent, but I started to play devil's advocate, you know, and just pull up other research papers, and one that caught my attention was um, that basically, depending on the ionic charge of the nutrient being applied, that mm -hmm. the leaf surface actually has a charge itself. And so that yeah. some of those larger molecules will adhere to the leaf surface and actually not um, become very mobile within the plant. And so you have yep. to be careful about um, specifically, I guess, what you're using for foliar. Absolutely. And not just what you're using as far as the product, but how you're applying it droplet size is incredibly important. So like when we're talking about micronization, the reason that the smaller particle size is better is because of increased surface area and decreased surface tension. So when we have large droplet sizes and large particle sizes within that droplet, we're really just coating our plants. We're not feeding them. 
Um, and that can actually be highly detrimental depending on what you're spraying on your plants. You've now created a layer that not, no, not necessarily nice microbes can live and thrive in. Uh, so you need to be careful of that. And you also need to be careful of what time you're applying your foliars. Like there's, there's an entire art to foliar application. It's not like you can just be like nutrients, pump sprayer outside. Um, yeah. It's not that simple. Um, there's definitely an art form to it and a science. Uh, and I would say that, you know, what you're spraying, being aware of whether it is biotic, abiotic or biotic, and whether, like, because that determines what type of equipment you need to use. You can't be forcing biotic things like microbes through highly micronized screens or through piston um, pumps or through turbine pumps. It'll just shred them. You need to use things like diaphragm pumps or venturi systems, where if you're spraying micronized calcium and amino acids, you can run an atomizer and then you can get really phenomenal droplet size. So you need to be aware of targeted application, what you're using, its micronization size, and then what you're applying in its droplet size. So there's a handful of things that you need to consider before you just start going and spraying stuff on your plants. What's your preferred surfactant? Depends what I'm using. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm very much the type of person where I believe that like, I don't like one size fits all. Um, that's why like, if a client ever asked me like, can you just give me like SOPs for something? I'd be like, no, no, because every SOP is unique to their facility, to their grower, to their method, to like what, where mercury is in the retrograde. Like it's all <laughs> important and it's all selective. So there is no one size fits all in the life of a farmer. And so I don't feel like there's a one size fits all in that either. Um, that said, I like yucca quite a bit. Yucca? Everybody listening, yeah, sorry, I've got yucca. Uh, yucca on my website. It's been a long day. It? <laughs> it's kind of clock here, and I've been working since then. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, I like to use yucca too. Yeah? What is, one, is one of your favorites beyond that one? Who you talking to? Either one of you. Both of you. Well, I usually just use yucca because I sell it, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> um, aloe vera. Is, yeah, is I, was, I was about to say aloe. Yeah. Have you ever played with fermented aloe? I have fermented aloe before. Um, so when I have when there's like specific plant inputs that have like very specific, um, you know, phytochemical profiles that I'm looking for, I don't like to ferment them because the ferment fermentation process will convert specific organic acids into other organic acids. Absolutely. And a lot of the times we don't know what they are unless you know we're using. You know, like a chromatograph, which I definitely don't have. Oh, and no. I'm definitely, <laughs> if you <laughs> know. Yeah, right. Um, the extra when I have an extra hundred thousand dollars, I'll, I'll yeah, buy one. Over you should just pull it. together from all of us and just get one so that we can actually start doing these tests. Like, how yeah. much phosphorus is in WACP? Like, or CAP? Ex exactly. Well, why you can't know? we get a sponsor? Come on, labs. <laughs> labs. Yeah, we need a lab to just send us a chromatograph so we can test what organic compounds or, are. better yet, we need a lab that'll let us just send them samples. That's what I'm saying. A sponsored yeah. lab that just is like, yeah, we want to support the education. You find the we sponsor, put me in front of them, and I'll see what I can do to make it happen. I'm a good talker. God, that would be I so cool. me and Luna could do some convincing. But yeah, let's okay. do it. Let's, let's, just, let's go get them. Um, <laughs> so, so, no. So, um, whenever I do, like, any kind of fermentation, it's usually for, like, um, uh, like nutrition, right? For like nutrient content, like yep. making like um, fermented plant extracts. Um, I've kind of leaned away from making uh, for, uh, FPJs uh, quite a bit, just because I think that the 
the science for nutrition content for nutrient content makes more sense with like lactobacillus breakdown um or even just like soaking in like an acidic water so no it's answer your question water as far as ph three five three five so you're five, talking, yeah. yeah, you're talking vinegar level. Yeah, I'm talking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, there's a whole bunch of research papers. I can send you some um, talking about extracting organic acid um, with acidic water and that being like the standard practice, like the, uh, the, the industry standard for extracting organic acids and phytohormones. Um, and it's not with osmotic extraction. And I'm not trying to shit on KNF at all. That is not my intention. But that's what the industry standard is for extracting phytohormones um, yeah. is acidic water. And then they use other processes, you know, different like distillation and, and um, uh, solvents and stuff like that, which I'm not getting into because um, it's just not my style. But yeah. um, so that's kind of what I've been playing with if I'm trying to go after like organic acid profiles. But if I'm using fermentation, it's typically for nutrient content because um, there's a lot of information surrounding lactobacillus breakdown for um, releasing nutrients. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I've been sticking to. So if I have like a, an input like aloe vera, which, you know, we can look up the, the phytochemical profile of and see that it has a lot of like beneficial compounds like salicylic acid, um, you know, like a big amino acid profile. Um, I try not to run it through different biological sources. Like I try not to ferment it. Um, so like you'll see in my teas, I'll add it like post-brew because I don't want those compounds to change because I don't want them to be something I don't know what they are. Um, and if I want to use them for a very specific growth stage or for a very specific reason, I want to know what I'm using. So no, yeah. I don't, I don't ferment, um, I don't ferment stuff as much when I'm playing around with like organic acids and things, but I actually just make my fermented aloe and I eat it. You eat it? Oh. Yeah. That's great. Oh, <laughs> for food. Like, yeah, that sounds great. Um, what do you, how are you fermenting it? Uh, just traditional natural farming methodology, osmotic pressure standard oh, okay. that, are, that are on my aloe when I cut it up. So like FP or FPJ? Yep, basically FPJ style. And then cool. strain and drain and mix that it. Sounds yummy. It's delicious. Yeah, a it's lot of brown like sugar. It's like an aloe syrup, and it's great if you put it in carbonated water with a little bit of ginger. Mm. Nice. Very nice. Yeah, I eat a lot of natural farming inputs. As much as I make them for the garden, I make them for me, for sure. Really? Yeah. I've never... I've tasted, so I've made like a lot of um, like raspberry or uh, blackberry FPJ, yep. right? Like premature blackberry FPJ, which even though I, so I mean, that's like the one that I'll still use, like bamboo, raspberry, <laughs> um, premature apples, um, premature pears. Yep. I'll still make those in FPJ just because I've seen drastic physiological re like responses in the plants when using yeah. them. Yeah, and I even agree. though, you know, you know, like th these more uh, premature uh, inputs, they're shown to have high like jasmonic acid levels, like premature apples definitely do like that is a fact that's yeah. been studied. Um, and I don't know whether or not how, you know, how much of those compounds are remaining in that original form, fermenting them and using them, the, the, the effects are obvious. So I'm not going to say like it still has methyl jasmine in it, but when using it. Yeah, but there's anecdotal evidence that shows that it is effective in some way it's doing something, you know? And, and I think that a lot of the time it's the profile of organic acids because all organic acids have like phytohormone effects really. Um, and things that we a lot of the time don't consider to be phytohormones or the common phytohormones still have physiological effects on, on plants, right? Um, and so almost all organic acids are a form of phytohormone and we have these profiles of organic acids that are huge inside of every plant. Um, uh, 
Yeah, so it works. I don't know what it, it is <laughs> exactly that's doing it. I don't know why, but it does. But I know that this. I know that this works. Oh, sorry, I keep banging on my table. We're getting farming. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? No, you're fine. Yeah. Um, I was saying I intentionally grow for both my farm and for my family a whole variety of fruits. We grow apples. We grow peaches, nectarines, plums, pears, blackberries, raspberries, golden raspberries, and wine berries. And I ferment both the shoots of all the berries. Like if you ever want something that's just straight delicious, uh, take fresh blackberry or raspberry shoots, the little growing tips and FPJ that. And it makes such a strong berry flavor and it's delicious. And you mix that as just like a simple syrup style thing into whatever, you know, water or tea and you can jazz it up pretty nice. Very cool. Very cool. Did you ever make OHN? Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I have so, a. I make OHN all the time, but I make extra of the garlic and ginger input, and I use them in cooking all the time. So I I really like OHN. I think OHN is my favorite. Um, yeah. Korean natural farming input. Yeah, it's, it's amazing it, stuff. It makes the most sense to me. You know, it's a you know an alcohol extraction. It's a solvent extraction. Um, pulling profiles of phenols and, and prebiotics to kind of set the stage for like a diversity, right? I'm, I'm really big into to polysaccharides, polyphenols um, as prebiotics yeah. um, to like set the stage for biology. And uh, so OHN is like probably my favorite and it's kind of what inspired me to play around with different profiles of, of uh, polysaccharides and polyphenols to like set the stage for a diversity of biology. Nice. Yeah, I have thoroughly enjoyed following your Instagram and watching the uh, amazing scientific madness that ensues. And I think it's phenomenal. Thanks. Yeah, you're definitely one of my favorite mad scientists, that's for sure. Woo! Oh. And I mean, the proof is in the pudding. You look at the work that you've done, and it's, it's you know, like we said with the FPJ, except for with you, we actually know why, because you're a scientist. But it's like, it just, it works. <laughs> it does. You know, something's happening. And a lot of the time, it's like, I don't know exactly why this is happening. And I probably never will. But I but I can conceptualize why it's happening yeah. and it is, and it is in fact happening. So yeah. I'm going to stick to It goes back to what I said at the beginning of it's observation. Everything starts with observation and we may never understand. I mean, we're highly, highly ignorant of most things, but specifically our microbiology. And so we may never understand why exactly it works or how exactly it works, but we can absolutely observe the efficacy. 100%. Um, we so had someone what OHN is? Oriental herbal nutrient. It is a alcohol extraction post fermentation. So first you ferment it for seven days and then you would start doing alcohol extractions. It's a number of different inputs. It is three dry herbs, which is angelica root, cinnamon bark, and licorice root. And then two uh, fresh inputs, which is garlic and ginger. The garlic and ginger you ferment in FPJ style and then add alcohol to them after your seven days and begin your extraction period of, I believe, about three months minimum. And with the dry herbs, you first rehydrate them with beer, very cheap beer, and then ferment them for seven days and then provide alcohol as well and do the exact same process. And then at the end, you take all of them and you have them in containers. You mix them in equal ratios according to the recipe that you're following and then dilute that in water. Or you can drink it yourself. It's also delicious and good for you. It's a little spicy. It is. I like it. Spicy. It, it literally is like the epitome as far as smell and taste to me of like ancient Chinese medicine. Yeah. 
yeah, definitely. That's what I've heard it is. It's like an old ancient yeah. Chinese medicine recipe. Yep. Oh. Nice. Good share. What's that? What do you got there? What is that? It went away oh. before I got it. Crazy. I just shared. Somebody asked about jasmonic acid. So I just dropped oh. an article I wrote so nice. that they could read up on it on their own time. What jasmonates are. How did you do that? I don't know how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you have to show me how to do that. Yeah. How did you do that? How did you do that? I don't know how it appeared on the screen. I have no idea. That must have been behind the scenes. Ken. The Ken. wizard. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's what he's there for. All right. Well, so, I just grabbed that too because I want to read it. Cool. Oh. Oriental herbal nutrient. That's I haven't um, made it yet. Uh, it smells delicious. I you're talking about like consuming these um, preparations, and um, I was told that labs, if I um, used it, would help with my skin problems. I have eczema really bad, and so I thought that they meant like actually putting it on my eczema. And burn, I bet it burned. Oh my god, it burned so bad, and I diluted it, and I was like, it was way worse. Yeah, you just uh, you basically gave them some fresh skin to start digesting. Yeah, it was very high moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, lavender. It's like it's like three five. It's really burned. Yeah, it's it's uh, so don't do that, guys. Yeah, a lot of lactic acid and bacteria right into. Yeah, that doesn't sound like fun. I hope, yeah, I hope don't put in any cuts either. Oh yeah, I'm fine. I I started drinking it though a little bit. Do you yeah, think it's helping like your digestion? Oh yeah, it seems like it's helping my digestion. Not so yeah, much the eggs are still there. So. Help. Well, yeah. it may inadvertently, like totally not medical advice. Um, little pre thing. <laughs> Disclaimer, uh, not medical advice, not a doctor. Um, anecdotally, I have been told that essentially uh, eczema is an autoimmune reaction and often autoimmune reactions start with lower intestinal gut health and lactobacilli is good for lower intestinal gut health or just intestinal gut health in general. Therefore, by improving your intestinal gut health, you may inadvertently be, or actually rather directly, but unknowingly be improving your eczema. Okay. So I just need to keep on keeping on. I would also recommend a really high quality CBD topical. I do use different CBD and cannabis topicals, but it's just only since I've lived in Washington. Washington air, my skin doesn't like it. It's Interesting. Very weird. Well, if you want to reach out after, and um, we still have some products from when I created uh, my company, and we have a phenomenal uh, lotion and salve that are both good for eczema and my own family. Um, they both have over 23 different beneficial botanicals. So they're like a phenomenal product on its own, just holistically. And then also has really high quality full spectrum CBD. Wow. Thank you. I would really like that. So yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. Afterward. Sweet. Well, Same more questions. Really for you. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your, um, I read up on you a little bit and I just thought, that your story was really incredible. Um, and I wanted to say, I'm so sorry about your fa- your father, but um, that is amazing that you were able to like, you know, the, the power, like we're, you're, we're talking about autoimmune, we're talking about our health and the health of our plants. And that's like, I think one of our biggest connections here, why we're drawn to this plant is because of what it has done for our health, um, whether that's physical, mental um, or anything, but I just want to say thank you and no, no, my story. pleasure. 
my pleasure. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it sucked losing my dad, but I have to say that I think he would be really, really proud of what I've done. Um, and I think that he would, uh, he'd be really happy that he was the catalyst that made me completely change my entire life direction. And I couldn't be happier. Um, I'm helping people. I'm helping to change the world to some extent in my own little way. And I think I'm having a lot more profound impact on the world than I would have if I had just stayed in Western medicine. I agree. I agree. Thank you. But thank you. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I do my best. I've had incredible mentors and teachers. Um, and I do my very best of which one was my father and my grandfather. And I just do my very best to try to live up to those shoes I have to fill. My grandfather was a Brown University professor, uh, spoke seven languages, uh, created the entire concept of the interdisciplinary studies. So having multiple majors and creating your own path. Uh, he basically created that for the first time in the world at Brown University. So he's one of their most like recognized professors. And so going now into education myself to some extent has been sort of like a carrying the torch feeling and it's been really beautiful to be able to carry on both my dad's legacy and my grandfather's legacy, but also forge my own path. And also inadvertently found out while going through my grandfather's possessions that my great great grandfather was one of the first cannabis research scientists in Austria, Vienna, um, at one of the first biological institutes of research. And they were doing animal husbandry and plant breeding, and they were breeding cannabis, specifically hemp. Uh, fiber hemp and doing different measurements and we found notes that he had and pictures of him standing next to like 15 foot tall cannabis plants with a measuring stick and so it's kind of cool to find out that not only am i uh, a new generation of educator and hippie of my dad but i'm also uh continuing on the family generational thing of growing cannabis which a i legacy. never would have expected being a legacy grower that's, yes, so, great. that's so cool that is so cool silver linings it's all with all that life is about. It's perspective. And now you're teaching integrated systems, which is kind of like the interdisciplinary, you know? So it's yeah, like of cannabis. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. I really appreciate you guys having me on. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, do you have any more questions for me or anything you want to hit on before um, we wrap up? So we have some questions from uh, the audience. Sure. Oh, good. Kind of, kind of roll through some questions. Excellent. I love these. That's where I get to jump on and give you a hard time too, you know. <laughs> uh, come on, uh, I always love seeing you. <laughs> Should we be using frass? Oh, insect frass, great question. Um, so insect frass is what I would consider um, one of those stress indicator biostimulants. Um, essentially what insect frass is, is it's insect poop and shells. It mm -hmm. reacts in the soil as it breaks down and the plant is under the impression that either A, it is about to be attacked by a lot of insects, sort of like what you had spoke to earlier with the uh, pine trees, and they're increasing the signaling to tell the other pine trees around them that there's an insect attack coming. Be prepared, increase your defenses, create more secondary metabolites to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. um, the plant has a very similar response, except not just is it signaling the plants around it, but also it itself is boosting its own defenses to sort of prepare for the invasion, so to speak but the invasion actually never comes. So you get the benefit of the potentiation of the stressor without ever actually inducing stress within the plant. Like when we do a drought stress to increase metabolites, um, we are effectively stressing the plant's actual biotic systems to the extent that it has a physiological and chemical response, but you're still gonna have to recover from that physiological stress. 
it still is a dehydrated plant. Um, and you did get that slight reduction in production at that time. But then you get the benefit of the plant's response after the fact. With frass, you're able to get that response without actually having a negative impact. Um, it's also um, minor nutritional component. So I personally like insect frass quite a bit. Um, make sure it's high quality. Black soldier fly is really good. And um, it also never hurts to have black soldier flies in your soil, especially if you're in a living soil system. But be careful like all things. Whenever you pick a product, sourcing, 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 vet it, test it. Yep. Don't just go throwing it into your garden, whatever it is. Even if it's something that I've recommended, batches change, things change, supply change. Um, vendors don't store things properly often. So never take for granted what is sent to you. Always test it first on a small scale. Um, and if you're a production person, I highly recommend you send it out for third-party lab testing to verify guaranteed analysis. Oh, no, that was a damn good answer, my friend. Let me add one thing, though. Is that constantly uh, stimulating this plant defense response mm -hmm. um, will take energy away from other processes. Absolutely. So continue. So I like to use insect frass like early on, right? But I don't recommend continually using it over and over throughout your cycle because stimulating that response can take energy away from other processes. Absolutely so agree. Same with overusing particular hormones. Yep. I would say any biostimulant needs to be a targeted and temporary use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then we'll go to the next. Uh, Alex, do you have I, something to add? I just wanted to think about that for a second and think that so like insect frass is being it's the chitin that's in the insect frass that is triggering the response. But then like fungal cell walls are made of chitin. So isn't there always like chitin there no, always? No, not, not necessarily. It's not the it's not necessarily the chitin that's triggering that response. It's it's like like we were saying, like the the full profile of, of um, volatile compounds like yeah. secreted by the biology and by the insects that are still captured within that input. Yeah. Um, so chitin is just is a polysaccharide, you know, it's a complex carbohydrate. Um, yeah, but it, it increases like jasmonic acid and other like plant hormones. Well, it's a component in building those hormones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I would also say that there is something to the fact that insect frass isn't just shells. It's also their poop um, and their poop, which is broken down biomass of a plant for, most of the time when they're being fed um, is going to have a secondary response that the plant's going to read as well. It's not just that there's all of a sudden a bunch of shell matter that the chitin is triggering things, but there's also the response of the actual poop itself and then the potentiation mm. of black soldier fly larvae that are actually coming in that frass as well. I've never gotten a frass that didn't have larvae. I think that a good frass should. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Thinking of it as the whole, whole system. Yep. But yeah, biostimulants is definitely a TNT. It's big boom in a short time, so temporary and targeted. Yeah, you want to supply a lot of molecules, but not all at the same time and over and over because then constant. you're throwing it out of balance. Yep, not constant. Yeah. Um, are polyphenols like those found in coca useful? So, I'm going to turn that to Luna. So polyphenols just kind of set the stage for what will live in in the soil right so it's not necessarily that that they have specific physiological effects but they will set the stage for what will exist inside your soil right um these different energy sources and compounds they need to have specific 
biology to break them down. And without them present, that biology won't exist, right? So by introducing a profile of polyphenols, we're allowing for a larger diversity of biology to consume those foods. Same with polysaccharides, which is why I've been in, in polysaccharides are prebiotics. It's another word for it. A lot of time people just call them sugars, but they're, they're very different from sugars. Um, so these are just things that set the stage for different species of biology to, to break down. So it's, it's, what was the exact question again? With, will they? Oh, I, I found in coca useful. Oh, yeah. so adding, you know, you'll just be encouraging a different profile by adding them. And coca has like an interesting like fat profile and having fats inside your, your soil is definitely uh, beneficial also. Oh, I didn't get to read the whole thing. What was that one? Something about manure being sprayed. All the manure sprayed this season with all the rain, lots of water in Ontario is contaminated. Who sprays manure? Uh, farmers, a lot of farmers up here, uh, especially like hot rights. Not broadcast. Basically, you can spray chicken manure. Um, which is oh, really just putting it into a liquid suspension, and then okay, yeah. okay. Sorry, I was, yeah. I was, I was picturing people spraying piles of manure, and I'm like, why, like with labs? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean no. that's 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 just a really unfortunate thing as far as the environment goes. Uh, runoff is a thing. And yeah. So that's why I think it's always very, very important to make sure that whenever you're doing agricultural practices, you are very aware of your waterways, your swales, which directions water will go if you have an excessive amount. Um, there's always a good idea that you can build in swales around your property's low points and then have them feed to a retention pond so that if you do have catastrophic flooding, rain, or just a really bad irrigation event with like a main line, main line of like a six inch blows, um, you'll have all that runoff but you can catch it in the in the retention pond and not contaminate your waterways and the rest of your property fantastic advice and practices yep and ladies anything to add to that nope okay then we'll jump to the next <laughs> question okay uh will yaka help clean also you were, we were talking earlier about uh cleaning and how many times you were supposed to be cleaning your your system and that's when this question came in no not at all in fact it'll make it worse yeah don't run it through the blue mat system no no especially don't run it through expecting it to be uh, a cleaner like an enzymatic cleaner all you're going to do is create surfaction within your pipelines and create a matrix, a skeleton, essentially, for a biofilm to build on. And you don't want biofilm. No, biofilm. Um, actually, I just worked with a facility that had such catastrophic biofilm buildup that they were getting a pH drift of almost five points across an 800 foot run. Um, yeah. Yeah. When I went into the facility, we had plants that were like pink and neon purple and like yellow like you've never seen i've never seen such an interesting bad rainbow of colors like it looked like the most hardcore like fade you've ever seen but they were in like week four or five of flower and it was just yeah everything was fried and it was because they were running uh just plain water not even fertigation just plain water through the pipes but it was just picking up such a ph drift and such a biofilm toxicity that it was actually it was putting tons of pathogens tons of pathogens in their soil. They had completely sterile bags of soil and they by by the week four or five almost every time all of them had fusarium. 
Oh, Jesus. So are you using humic and fulvic to, to clean the lines at all? Humic and fulvic, no. No? I've heard I'm actually gonna... that it's supposed to be really good. Um, for bi To eat the biofilm. Uh, potentially, but I've got other enzymatic cleaners that are proven out that I prefer. Um, also, I'm a big fan of acid cleaning. Um, okay. I'm a fan of like paracetic acid or, um, like I said, sulfuric phosphoric, but you have to be careful of what acids you use and what your pipes are made of. Uh, plastics yeah. are susceptible to many different types of acids. So you need to be aware of what your dilutions are and you need to be aware of what you're running through them, that it's specifically okay for PVC pipe if that's what you're running through. If you're running through steel, it's a little different. Yeah. And then I, I also use your schedule uh, 20 or schedule 40. Yeah. Uh, and I also always recommend to make sure that when you're producing, when you're like building your pipe, it's like a design thing, but when you're creating your irrigation lines, um, always put bottlenecks in at different like different set points of whatever piece of mechanical equipment you have to clean. So if you've got a 20 foot pipe cleaner on like a rotary drill, make sure mm -hmm. you're putting an inversion pipe every 20 feet that you are less than every 20 feet so that you can mechanically clean your pipes all the way down because over time, even using enzymatic cleaners, you'll get biofilm build and you'll get matrix buildups. Um, and every time, even if you run an enzymatic cleaner through, once that matrix is there, once the skeleton exists, you can cook all the muscle off of it, but the skeleton's still there. And that means that the next time biofilm begins to develop, it's got a skeleton to work off of and it builds way faster. It's got the genetic code sitting right there to, to look at and go, oh, here we go. Yeah, we'll build this. Not even, it's, it's literally, it's like it's got the framework. Uh, think of it like yeah. a building. If, if there's no building there, you have to build a steel frame for the building and then build the outside of the building around it. You light the building on fire, all the wood burns off, but the steel's still there. So the time that it takes to rebuild the building is half the time. It's like the honeybee to build new comb takes uh, yeah, so yeah, much exactly. more energy yep. than and to just take a roll. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, so the next question is, yeah, now yucca probably decreases friction, less cleaning effect. So to my understanding, uh, the surfactant doesn't really just reduce friction. It does, it reduces surface tension uh, and it allows for particleization essentially. That's different than saying that it does not leave a residual upon what it touches. Okay. So I wouldn't agree with that statement. We'll change the viscosity of the water. Yeah, it changes yeah. the viscosity, but it's not going to change the fact that you're still running nutrient-rich solution through a pipe, and some is going to be residual. Okay. Actually, if you have non-contiguous pipes, which I just recommended, you shouldn't, so that you have cleaning points. But that does mean you'll have lips and ridges within that pipe where things will catch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so the next one is what about feeding the plants protein? I would say what type of protein? I mean, technically speaking, amino acids are the most basic building blocks of proteins. So a lot of what we feed, like bone meal, I mean, sorry, not bone meal, blood meal is highly protein rich. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of proteins that are fed to plants. And you're feeding at the molecular level. Garden. Yeah. You're, as I say, you're feeding at the molecular level, and it's easier for the, the biology to grab a molecule than to break down 100 molecules that are bound together. It's the same reason why humans can take amino acids when we're trying to build muscle fast versus just eating a protein-rich diet. Our body has to take energy to make energy, so it has to take energy to break those proteins down in their organic forms and then build them into what we want them to be. 
where if you just mm-hmm. take a direct amino acid, part of that work is done for us. Yeah. But it's never, in my opinion, about replacement. It's about supplementation. Yes. Well, and like we like different diets. What was that, Luna? <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. Every cell contains protein, you know, so, so plants are constantly surrounded by protein. It's like carbon. It's the vast majority of what we're made of. Right. When you get CO2 back in the soil, just build biology. Yeah, yeah. That said, don't go like throwing protein powder in your garden. <laughs> no Even doubt. if it's like plant-based vegan protein powder, don't do that. <laughs> Let the biology eat it first. Throw it in your compost. Do you think having a cover crop and having different root zones with different biological profiles increases the diversity of compounds? So that's a two-parter. Having cover crop definitely influences biology, uh, especially when you're running a system where you're pulling plants out uh, and doing a fallow period. You need something growing in that soil to keep the plants happy. I mean, to keep the microbes happy and fed to continue that symbiotic relationship. So that's one of the reasons why having uh, fallow fields that are tilled dirt is one of the most damaging things you can do to that dirt. You're yep. essentially breaking up the microbial communities, exposing them to oxygen. So they oxidize and UV light kills them. So the whole top layer gets exposed and dies, but then secondarily, you're not providing them with anything that they can have a symbiotic relationship with and survive and feed on. So having cover crop is 100% helpful as far as maintaining biodiversity in your soil but it comes with its own litany of potential pressures and problems that can happen. Um, so I would say it can be a targeted technique depending on application. Outdoors, it's fantastic. Indoors, it can be very problematic, uh, especially if not done right. The second part of that question, can you pull it back up? Different roots up, right. So um, very, very interesting point that can be made about different root zones is I have seen um, some interesting things along the lines of having dual root zone cultivation, specifically between living soils and aquaponics. And I've Mm -hmm. seen some really interesting development of terpene profiles. Um, But I only have, again, anecdotal experience with that. I don't have any clinical data. Um, Though I can say that, logically speaking, it makes sense. Because if we're saying that the diversity of microbes influences the diversity of um, secondary metabolite productions, provided that nutrition and environment is all on point, if we're saying hypothetically and logically, the more diverse and higher levels of populations of biology, the higher the diversity of our profiles, then yeah, having aquatic and terrestrial biology would absolutely logically make sense to increase potencies, increase percentages and diversity specifically. Yeah, definitely. And then we have, what's your recommended pH for foliar spraying depends what you're spraying totally depends what you're spraying because a you don't want to be over adjusting your ph because then you're putting a whole lot of potentiation in there that isn't necessarily what you're trying to get on the plant depending on whether you're trying to come up or down um i mean if you're adjusting down the phosphoric acid and sulfuric acids can be very useful um and can provide good results um in general i go a little bit more acid than base with a foliar look what do you okay. think, Luna? Do you particularly adjust your pH off of your for your foliars, or do you sort of let it ride with whatever your fermentation or your micronization is? No, I just let it do its thing. Basically, I do the same, unless it's way out of acceptable parameters. Like, I'm not going to spray a 2 pH on my plant 
I'm not going to spray a nine pH on my plant. That'd be really hard to get it even there. I don't even know how you do that <laughs> from like baking soda. Look, I've, I've, I've got stories, man, from places. So <laughs> I had I had an entire mom room of 150 moms that was fed uh, 10 pH water. Whoops. Hydrogen uh -oh. bomb. Wow. Wow. That was right. fun. I think that it's important for people to know that pH is a logarithmic scale and humans have a hard time conceptualizing logarithm versus linear. So that every pH scale you go up is 10 times that, 10 times that, 10 times that. So a pH of 10 is like not just for... Not just four points up. above. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, the no. power of. Yeah. 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 Log yeah. four. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also important for people to know that... Uh, Bases in in high concentration were just like acids. They will still burn. Mm -hmm. like, it's, it's still very caustic. Why you always want to maintain the balance? It's all about balance. Yep. So, guys, that was it for questions. Uh, do you want to close out now, or you want to keep going? Up to you guys. I can riff for a few more. Um, I actually have another podcast in five minutes. <laughs> I'm on another podcast. Oh, you're two timing us, Luna. What the hell? I'm not hosting. I'm not hosting the podcast. I'm a guest on the podcast. going. Share the knowledge. More the yeah. more people that hear the knowledge, the better off we all are. Exactly. I'll be on the fun. Growing with Fishes podcast. Oh, oh nice. Awesome. So actually, Steve is who I was referencing with the dual root zone cultivation and aquaponics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Steve. Yeah, I've learned a lot about that for Steve too. Right on, right on, right cool. on. Okay, guys, um, you guys have any events other than Luna's going to be on a podcast in four minutes? <laughs> um, um, KNF class, Saturday, Chris Trump. If anybody needs to come, wants to come, grab a ticket. We've got where? discount code. Um, it's online. Chris is coming to my house. Um, yeah, we're where? teaching it where together. I'm in Spokane, Washington. Oh, nice. Yeah. I wish I was there. I would love to go out and see Chris, but no, I haven't seen him in person since. Uh, okay, Luna, you better, you better leave. I gotta go. I gotta go. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Luna, thank you. Bye. The, the podcast is growing with fishes, you guys. Growing yep. with fishes. I hope you guys have a great class together. Uh, give Chris all my love. I will. Thank you. We he we went and had lunch today, and we're gonna go collect some IMO tomorrow and do some fun preparation things for the class. So I'm excited. Nice. Well, right uh, if you guys ever want to chat, give me a shout. All right. And here's good. a reach out if you want that. Uh, if you want to try one of those, let me know. Yeah. How do I get a hold of you? Just. Uh... Uh, I'll shoot you my number in my in the back chat. Sweet. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you and talking. You don't know how excited I get about talking terpenes. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, and I'd be totally down to come back anytime again. There's so much more that we can talk about. Oh yeah. Hours and hours of knowledge that can be shared. Yes, definitely. Um, Alex, do you have something coming up? Or no, sorry, Ben, do you have something coming up um, where people like I know you do consulting, etc. Um, do you have anything coming up for, you know, live events? Um, there's a handful of potential events I'll be speaking at in the fall. Uh, okay. As of right now, I don't have anything locked down. It's this is my busy season. I've got indoor and outdoor ripping in full flow and a lot of clients. So um, my basic work schedule is all day every day. 
Uh, aside from that, though, when I get my moments of freedom, I do like to try to jump on podcasts like this. Um, cool. But no, nothing, nothing in particular that is coming up right now. Just work. But I mean, anybody that wants to talk to me, reach out. Feel free. Um, Benjamin Acadia at, on Instagram and AcadiaFarmsFamily.com. And on the website, there's all my contact information. Feel free to reach out at any point in time. You know, you can call me, email me, whatever. I'm always happy to try to help and always happy to have conversation and meet new people and learn new things and talk. Fantastic. Awesome. I just added you on Instagram, so follow me. <laughs> <laughs> and as for the channel, guys, we have Ron Harrington on Monday with Av and Layton. Uh, seed breeder, etc. It really deep into biology, of course. And then uh, on Tuesday we have Aaron Butler from the Canadian Cannabis Exchange, where growers are uh, selling their cannabis globally, uh, not just in Canada. Um, she's going to be on with us on Tuesday, and of course Andy on Wednesday. And she, Andy's with uh, Alex and Luna next Thursday. He's going to talk about. Um, how he's telling people he can tell which is a male and a female cannabis seed. That should be interesting. Okay. I'm cool. not going to be here, guys. So uh, Silly Lily is going to be taking the back end for that one, just to let you guys know. And with that, guys, everybody peace out. Great chat tonight, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate you all. Have a lovely